0: Today, Pastor Javen continues our series on the book of Genesis, and we'll see what happened in the garden and how this impacts us today. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. When I was in college, uh, some friends and I decided we were going to go on a trip uh, for a weekend. It was a long weekend. We said, we're going to go off and we're going to get away. And so we decided, when I say we, I mean more, they decided we we're going to go camping because you've heard me say before, I, you know that 's not my world, but I went because I was down for the fun. I was down to enjoy the the experience and the adventures, and it was fun. We had a lot of fun. We jumped in some cold water, we swam in it we, we, had, we had some great made some great memories there 's a lot of things that I remember from that weekend and I, you know, but I have said before the outdoors isn 't my necessarily my jam i don 't I, you know I, I, when, I like, when I go places, I like a comfortable bed and I like a nice bathroom i mean that 's just me so so when you're going on camp and things like that, it's hard to find that. Well when we got to the place that we were going, we got there late, super late. It was somewhere in Tennessee. I don't remember exactly who it was. We got there super late. And so it was really dark and it was hard to find a campsite when we got there. We were like walking through these this park and these woods trying to find some place that we can, you know, settle down for the evening. And uh and and it was really late and so the decision was made that we weren't gonna set up tents. Again, not necessarily my decision. Their decision. I was outnumbered. And so we slept under the stars that night. Well, when I woke up the next morning, I hear my friends standing around me. And I look to my left and there is a snake slithering beside me. I'm in my sleeping bag. Right, And now before you, you may say friends, David, what kind of friends are these? Listen, if I was in their shoes and one of them was in the sleeping bag, I'd have been up with all of them watching too. Just, you know, this is, we're guys, this is what we do. We're stupid. But anyway, so, so I'm sitting there, I look to my left and this thing is, this is why to this day I don't sleep under the stars. If I'm sleeping under the stars, I'm under a roof sleeping under the stars. All right. So, so, so there's this thing and it's slithering by me and this sneaky little serpent ruined my enjoyment of God's creation that night, right? So the rest of that weekend, I'm in a tent. I'm not sleeping under the stars. The rest of them kept sleeping outside, not me. I'm in a tent, right? We're in week two of uh, our series Genesis from the beginning where we're looking at how... Uh our origin story it's what we said last week. We're looking at our origin story, how things got started, how things began in, in all of this. And we're looking at the fact that Jesus has been a part of all of this from the beginning. And we, we talked about that last week. We said that in the beginning, there was not nothing, there was God. And then God created out of nothing. And he put into existence everything that that we have in, in this creation with life. And, and it was done out of his overflow of his love for us to be in relationship with him, for us to be in relationship with one another. And we said that Jesus has been a part of this from the beginning. John pointed out that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That Jesus was right there from the beginning. He was the Word that God used to speak into existence. And he brings life To us, that through him today we still find life and we find our creation in Christ. As we move forward in the book of Genesis, we're going to see that there is a sneaky little serpent, maybe not so little, that comes in and wants to ruin our enjoyment of God's creation. So let's go to Genesis chapter two. Let's look at this passage of scripture. This is, you may have read this before. I mean, Genesis, one of the easiest books in the Bible to find is just right there at the beginning, right? So Genesis chapter two, we're going to start with the very last verse of Genesis chapter two, and then we're going to go into Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter two, verse 25. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. Verse 1 of chapter 3, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course not. Uh, Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they s- suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you? That you were naked. The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit. And I ate it. And then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, wait, I jumped. We're going to stop there. It's so good. I just want to keep going. We're going to stop there. So we've got this scenario that's playing out sometime after God has made his creation and he's put man in the garden and they're working the garden and tending it the way God had called them to do. And in the place of this appears this, what Genesis called a serpent and the serpent is talking to Adam and Eve, I know a lot of questions, right? <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna try to get into this and see what we can get out from it. Now it's interesting for me. I want to start here rather. You might want to be start. You might want to start with the talking snake, but I want to start here. It's interesting to me that God creates a world. He puts man in it, and along with this creation that he is that he calls good, and it is good is the possibility for things to go wrong. Have you thought of that? Man was made in the image of God, but man was not made with immunity from temptation. God created Adam and Eve innocent, but he did not create them to be perfect. He created them blameless... But he created them with the power of choice. And then right from the beginning, we see this spiritual enemy that the scripture, all throughout scripture, he is named Satan. And we see Satan right there in the beginning. Why was Satan in the garden? If the garden, if Eden, we we call the garden paradise. Why was Satan in the garden? When you get into Revelation chapter 12, this is the vision that Jesus is speaking to John to give to us about the world and about what's going to happen in the future. When you get to Revelation chapter 12, you see this interesting description of a war that takes place in the heavens and angels being tossed from the heavens. If you flip all the way back to the prophets before Jesus ever came to this earth, you see it in Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. You see the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel speaking about kings in that time and the way they were doing things. And he used references to them in relation to these angels who were thrown out from heaven because there was an uprising. Satan and his little minions wanted to take over and God tossed them out. They were thrown down to creation. This is what we see to be taking place. But if Eden is paradise, why is Eden not a Satan free zone? Why does evil exist in paradise? You ever thought about that? The word Eden in the Hebrew is a word that actually means pleasure. So God had created man, and he put man in the garden to enjoy the pleasures of God. The pleasures of God's presence, the, pre- the pleasure of God's provision. But this is what we see take place with Satan. He comes in to twist God's pleasures. Because the enemy wants to counterfeit everything that God has created. He wants to take over, he wants to reign it, so he comes in and he twists the pleasures of and so he perverts the pleasures of God to deceive the innocence of man. And it's what he continues to do to this day. When, you, when you're in Revelation chapter 2, we're going we're to look at a verse. But real quick, I want to just speak to this. I mentioned this briefly last week. Some people will question, is Eden a real place? Is that is Did Eden even exist? Has it ever been discovered? Has, has, have we ever seen that there is an Eden that exists Archaeologists have done, they have dug, and they have looked, and, and there's, there's speculation of where Eden may have been. There's two rivers that are mentioned in Genesis, the Tigers and the Euphrates. Those still exist to this day. There's, there's places that people may believe that Eden could have existed. But I want us to understand, again, we've talked about this in weeks past, if you haven't been here the questions that we have about the, about the word of God, let's go to Jesus and let's start with Jesus and let's start with his death and his resurrection. Because if Jesus's death and his resurrection is real, then it verifies everything that he spoke and everything that he said. Right? So then if we look at what Jesus, Luke, who, remember, we, I, I said this a few weeks ago, Luke, who thoroughly investigated everything, he tells us in Luke twenty four twenty seven that Jesus sat down with his disciples on the side, and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he pointed to how everything, he showed how everything pointed to him. So beginning with Moses, beginning with his writings, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he shows them. And then we get to a verse like this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, where Jesus has given his vision to John and he tells him this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. He says, to everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So Jesus seems to be speaking of a very similar situation to what we relate to the Garden of Eden, because that's where the Tree of Life was. Now, the word that Jesus uses here is the word para- for the word paradise is the same exact word. I, I believe it's only used in this one other place. It's the same exact word where he looks at the thief on the cross beside him when he was being crucified. You remember this story? And he's being crucified. That first, the thieves are both just ha- just going at him. They're they're abusing him just like everyone else around him. But all of a sudden, the one one of them on this on, beside him has this epiphany. <laughs> And he realizes, wait a minute. This guy really is who he says he is. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you remember me? And Jesus looked at him and what did Jesus say to him? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is found in eternity with our creator where we are finally free from the presence of evil. That's paradise. Eden was a, I'm sure, a beautiful place. We'll call places like Hawaii. Well, sorry, that's. I understand there's a lot. There's something going on in Hawaii. But we would call places like Hawaii paradise. But paradise is the, an eternity with God. Free from the evil. That exists in our world. But in the meantime, what can we get from the fact that Satan exists in the garden, that evil exists? I look at this and I say the goodness of God is not determined by the absence of evil. You can still enjoy the pleasures of God's presence and the pleasures of God's provision even though evil exists in the world. What matters on this side of eternity is where are we giving our attention? Where are we putting our focus? Who or what are we giving our ear to? That's what matters. And for Eve and for Adam in this situation, they were giving their ear to this talking serpent. And that's weird, right? I get it. Animals don't talk. Animal. You, if you've ever come across a talking animal, we'll get a counselor. But it, animals animals don't talk. Now I've told you, I like reels. Yeah, I enjoy scrolling through reels because there's some that are funny. one of the ones I love is, Jenny thinks I'm crazy. she thinks it's stupid, but I lo- there's this dude that he takes these animals, these pets, and he, he speaks as if he's doing vo- voiceovers as if he's the pets, and they're talking. And some of these things are absolutely hilarious. I love these. but we know animals can't talk. Only God was made in the image of, uh, only man was made in the image of God. Man has been given the ability to think, the ability to speak, right? But we also know that we see throughout Scripture that there is possession of evil that takes place in man. In the Gospels, we get to the Gospels, we see that demons possess people. And we see that Jesus encounters a man who is possessed by a demon with the name Legion because there's multiple demons. And And when he casts them out, what do they ask to do? They ask to be cast out into the pigs. And he sends them. So not only can man be possessed, but animals can be possessed. So I believe what we're seeing is the embodiment of evil within this serpent. But it's interesting, right after the fall, when God begins to deliver his curse, he looks at the serpent first and he curses the serpent and he tells the serpent, you are cursed and from this day forward you will crawl on your belly groveling in the dust. So what that tells us is that they must not have always crawled on their belly. <laughs> this, this I'm not putting theological emphasis on this. I'm just saying this is interesting to me when you read the scripture. If you read everything that's in there, that means they didn't stand there. Was one day I was cutting grass. I don't like snakes. There was one day I was cutting grass and I looked up and there was a snake in the yard in front of me. That's cutting grass. So I'm like, all right, I got you. I'm full gear. We're going high speed. I'm coming up. I'm chopping the head of the serpent off right with the lawnmower. I kid you not. This thing stood up. Right. It's on its. T- it stood up and it's looking over my lawnmower. I put it in reverse. I said, okay, that's fine. You get back on your belly because you. Supposed to crawl, you get back and you grovel into dust like you're supposed to do, all right? And and then just go on and leave me alone. It's crazy. But what's important to realize and to see what's happening with Adam and Eve and what still happens to this day is this is the beginning of Satan's manipul- manipulative plan to draw man into sin and out of the presence of God. That's his plan. In the conversation that Eve has with Satan, there's immediate twisting of the Scripture. There's immediate twisting of the Word. Let me say the Word of God that had been spoken. All right? And it, it doesn't seem to be happening just from Satan. It appears that Eve, and I want to show you that, is, is, is twisting it a little bit as well. Satan starts by causing them to doubt God's Word. Did God really say He wants them to doubt what's taking place. And then Eve seems to add, let's look back at Genesis chapter two, verse 16. Look at what God told them when he put them in there. He said, the Lord God warned them. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And then Eve goes on and she says that God told us that we shouldn't eat from it, nor should we touch it. Now, maybe that's just sound advice because Eve is thinking to herself, if I touch it, then I'm going to be even more tempted to eat it. Maybe that's sound advice, but it just appears to be some type of adding to what God is saying. And I say that to say to you that we have to be careful to not just doubt God's word, but add to God's word, not to add to God's word. And then Satan goes in and he said he subtracts from it and he says, you won't surely you won't die. He takes that aspect away. There's a twisting of the script. Well, ultimately, what's happening is it, it appears that they're making God's word say what they want it to say. Distortion of God's word is dangerous. It's dangerous. That's what you. Please understand, that that's why I take very seriously when I come up here any Sunday to speak from God's word, that I am taking extremely serious what I am pulling out of the word of God and giving to you. Because I will be held accountable for that one day. Not by you, by him. Okay? So I understand that. So I bring to you the word of God that I believe that God is giving to me and I want to be careful not to distort the truth of God's word. That's why I'll encourage you also to go in and dig into God's word. And receive, but be careful not to twist the word of God. But what Satan does is he takes the attention of man off of what God had allowed them to take part in he takes their attention off of everything that he had freely given them to be blessed with and he puts their attention on the one thing that they were told they couldn't have he gets them listen, he gets them to question the goodness of God and deny the doctrine of God's judgment and he hadn't stopped Satan wants to distort with unbelief. He wants to deceive what you believe and distort it. He's asking, How can good say how can God say that he's good and withhold something from you? Well, if you're a parent, you know how. (laughs) Because just because something is good doesn't mean that they're ready. But Satan's getting them saying, if, if he's good, why is he withholding something? Shouldn't you be the one to decide what's good for you? How often are we hearing that in today's world? We start with the beginning of creation and God is creating everything and he's looking at creation. And he's saying, He, is, God is declaring what is good. And immediately Satan gets it and he twists it and now man is declaring what is good. And changing it. He wants to distort with unbelief. He wants to direct you to idolatry. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter one. He says that we are, we're, we're giving glory to corruptible things rather than giving glory to an an incorruptible God. We're putting glory on mortal images rather than giving glory to the immortal God. We are elevating things and putting in prime importance, things that should be in God's place. This is what the enemy does. We don't, we don't want to call it idolatry. We don't want to call it that. But this is what he does in our life. And John, when he writes his first letter in first John chapter two, he speaks to the believers and he tells them and he warns them not to be enticed by the things of the world. And they come in different forms. They come in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the pride of the heart. And he tells them the enemy coming at you from an emotional, from a practical, from a very spiritual place. And you've got to be on guard. He wants to distort with unbelief. He wants to direct you to idolatry so that he can ultimately destroy you through rebellion. Because he wants you to get, he wants to get you to ignore the judgment of God. In the coming weeks, we're going to see this begin to take place more and more. He wants to get you to ignore the judgment of God and decide for yourself that life is fine to live however you want to live it. But you, you know, you know that Life's not fine that way. Because the same thing that happens with Adam and Eve is the same thing that happens in our heart and in our life. Immediately, Adam and Eve have shame. As soon as they open this door, they have shame that enters into their life. The whole point of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, that first verse we read, that the man and wife were naked and felt no shame, it had nothing to do with a uh, sexual meaning. It was all to set up for what was going to happen because of sin. They were in a place where there was no shame in their life. They were enjoying the pleasures of God. And as soon as sin entered, now there's shame. There's an atheist who, who lived. His name was uh, Jean, Jean-Paul Sartre. He's French, so I'm assuming it's Jean, right? And he even made this comment. He said, in, inside every human heart, whether they believe in God or not, there is this, there's something that whispers not acceptable. There's something in you that whispers Condemned. He says that inside every person, there's this something that says, if every, if if they knew me, if they really knew who I was, then they wouldn't like me. They wouldn't want me around. So we keep people at arm's length. We know that's called shame. And we know that comes from sin. Shame comes with sin, but shame is also piggybacked with blame. What happened in the very beginning has not changed to this day. We blame each other, we blame God, and we blame the devil. It's either their fault, God, why did you allow this ha- to happen, or the devil made me do it. We, we live in a culture, in a world, where it's easier to point fingers and to blame than it is to accept responsibility. And then just ask for forgiveness. Adam and Eve thought that they're going to gain enlightenment and it's going to make their life better. But what they got with enlightenment was a loss of innocence. And they went from being blameless to being full of blame. So sin brings shame, it brings blame, but it also brings pain. And it brings relational turmoil. A couple of weeks ago, at the end of our summer reading series, we talked about the pain, the evil and the suffering that comes with sin. I want to focus on the relational aspect of this a little bit here and see. I I don't know if you missed it, but in verse six of Genesis chapter three, it said that where was Adam when this was taking place? Said that Eve turned and gave it to Adam. Who was what with her. That doesn't mean that Adam was off somewhere else (laughs) working, it means that Adam was right there watching and listening and seeing all this play out. I don't know if Adam was messed up sitting back there thinking, I will to see what happens. I mean, if she dies, then I know, okay, I'm not going to eat that. God made me one. He'll make me another. Um, slowly catching that. That's good. I don't. I don't know if this is just like messed up in, in this situation. I don't know what's happening, but Adam is not stepping up and stepping in between and speaking to this evil and saying, no, God has told us what we're to do and what we're to avoid. But they step into this together and Paul's and, and God speaks a curse and part of the curse is that he looks at a woman and he says that there will be, you will have desire for the man, but the man will rule over you. Now that word desire, it can be tricky there, but the word desire, it means desire to control. When you go to Genesis chapter four, when God looks at Cain, who is about to kill his brother, he tells him that sin desires you. It's the same word. And what he's telling him is sin wants to control your decisions. And he's looking at Eve and he's saying there's going to be a turmoil that's between relationships. There's a turmoil that happens. That's why in the context of that sentence, it says that you've got this desire, but man is, it ha- is going to rule over you. And ever since then, there's been this battle—not just between man and woman. There's a battle of the sexes, is what we call it. But between all men, there's this unhealthy competition and this desire to dominate. This is what sin brings. We see it carry over into the next chapter. Genesis three shows it how it begins. Genesis four shows it how shows us how it keeps going, and all through the scripture. We, we meet Cain and Abel. These are the sons of Adam and Eve. Some say, is this real? Again, Jesus speaks to this. Matthew chapter 23. You see him bring up the names of Cain and Abel. Yes, they're real. Cain becomes a farmer. Abel becomes a shepherd. We see that there's a lifestyle of worshiping God. But even in their lifestyle of worshiping God's sin, still battles. Cain brings to God in his offering some fruit. Moses tells us that Abel brings the first the offspring of his animals and the fattest. In other words, what Moses is telling us is Abel brought his best to offer God. Cain just brought something. And God blesses and receives Abel's, but he doesn't Cain's. And what does Cain do? Cain gets mad at Abel because he sees Abel's as better than his. So he wants to now compete of his brother, and he wants to dominate what his brother does, and the only way to do that, in his mind, is to kill his brother. But not without warning from God. Again, God tells him sin is crouching, is waiting. It wants to. It it desires you. It's, it's the imagery that Peter gives us when he writes his letter that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And so he puts him in this situation or he's, he's warning them of this situation, but Cain goes through with it. And then God comes back to Cain and he asks him, where's your brother? I want you to think about this because this is what sin does. When he went to Adam and Eve, he asked them the question, where are you? Because he wanted them to consider their relationship to him. They were hiding from the presence of God. When he went to Cain, he said, where is your brother? Because he wanted Cain to consider his relationship with his brother sin wants to step in between our relationship with God and our relationship with others. This is the very thing that God has called us to do. Love Him with everything that's in us and love one another the way that Christ has loved us. And so Cain does it, but then he goes right into a life that's lived immediately with shame, blame, fear, and pain. And he goes and he runs off and he he leaves the land that that God had given them. And he goes and he lives in this land called Nod, which literally means wandering. And he establishes his own society and his own place outside of the guidance of God. He begins to build his family. Yes, all of this is taking place in incest. But thankfully in Leviticus chapter 18, God condemns incest. Okay, so that's, let's just go ahead and clear that up. All right? But he gets there and he begins to establish this family. And he begins to build these things. And what happens as they begin to build? Well, they begin to prosper. Again, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The prosperity of the wicked has always baffled and bothered those who follow Christ. How, how can this happen? But again, we looked at it. We said that Jesus told us on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, God allows the sun to shine on the unjust and the rain to come down on the wicked. This is God's love. We're either amazed by it or we're appalled by it. I choose to be amazed by his love. And Cain builds his family and eventually from his family comes a guy named Lamech, and from Lamech comes these three different sons that we see this, this uh, thing take place that's been happening ever since. There's modernizing of agriculture, there's flourishing of the arts, there's progression of technology that basically begins to take place. You see it at, near the end of Genesis chapter 3. These things are possible because even sinful men and women are still have a part of the image of God created with them. It allows them to think. It allows them to create. It allows them to grow. It allows them to develop. It allows them to experiment. It allows them to dream. It allows them to explore. But where we see birth of civilization through creativity because man has a part of the image of God, we also see d- the decline of humanity because man is cursed with sin. And the mech and his toxic masculinity He begins to sing this song to his wives. Yes, you heard that correctly. He begins to sing to them that this man tried to injure him, but he killed him. And he's boasting about it. He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, I am avenged 70 times seven. But then we begin to see the line of Seth at the end of Genesis chapter four. And we see that Again, God never operates without a plan. He's got a plan because it's from this line that will come Jesus Christ. And it's from this line that even though they're not perfect, they still boast in the name of God. Because where ungodliness grows, those who are godly need to grow even louder. And the enemy's got a plan to deceive and destroy, but God has a plan. And in the Garden of Eden, he spoke immediately a messianic prophecy. When he looked at the serpent and he said, that from the offspring of man will come one who would crush your head. Jesus Christ came to crush the head of evil, to destroy the enemy, to destroy Satan. And it was after that that God covers Adam and Eve with the first substitutionary atonement he covers them because through the fall we, we we learned that we've got a problem that we can't be the solution for remember John said that Jesus came and he came into the darkness of this world so that those who rejected the word can have light and life again. He came to make all things new. John continued his parallel to Jesus when he gets to the crucifixion and he tells us that on the sixth day, Jesus died. The sixth day of creation was the day that God created man. God creates man on the sixth day. On the sixth day, Jesus dies for man. And on the first day of the week, Jesus is resurrected. He's absorbed the sin of curse that was brought to the first creation by sin. And His resurrected started a new week. And it started a new opportunity for new creation in Christ. John points out through his gospel. That the first place that man experienced a resurrected Jesus Christ. Was the same type of place that man first experienced God. In the presence of God when they were created. And that was in a garden. Mary Magdalene looking for the body of Christ, wondering where it is in the garden, crying, Jesus appears to her. He tells us that when the disciples are gathered, Jesus looks at them and he breathes on them and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that God breathed life into creation when he existed through his spirit. Jesus breathes life again to our souls through the spirit. Just as Jesus was the power behind the old creation, he is the power of the new creation. The serpent came to deceive us and distort us with unbelief. He came to detour us and direct us to idolatry and he came ultimately to destroy us with rebellion. But Jesus Christ came to defeat the serpent and deliver us from sin. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter five. Verse 15. There's a difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift for the sin of this one man, Adam brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin for Adam's sin left led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Peter writes it this way. First Peter chapter one, verse 18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. That's the life that Paul was just talking about from Adam. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And listen, God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. God had a plan. But he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Through Christ you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave you his great glory. Sin brings shame. Sin brings shame. But the only way to cover your shame is to be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Sin brings blame. But the way to be made blameless again is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. Sin wants to bring an unhealthy competition and pain and turmoil within relationship. Jesus has taught us to serve one another in love. And where sin wants to lead us to vengeance, Jesus has taught us to forgive. He took that statement of Lamech, it said, I will be avenged 70 times 7. And he's speaking to Peter when Peter says, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? No, 70 times 7, said Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is man thinks vengeance should be unlimited. No, forgiveness is unlimited. Satan wants to destroy what God has created. This is this is what you need. If you don't get anything else from, from today. Satan wants to destroy it. Jesus Is your trump card. (laughs) You're playing the game. He trumps everything. Whatever Satan tries to do, just Jesus. Jesus. He turns it around. And God removed man from the garden, but He didn't remove the hope of returning to paradise. If man stayed in the garden, they'd still have access to the tree of life, but they would live forever in their sin. God guarded the tree of life. Jesus tells us to put cherubim on it. Real quick, I, I know we're, we're getting to, but listen, just stay with me. We fast forward in Jewish history. They build a temple. To be a place where they can experience the presence of God. You got the holy place, you got the holy of holies. Between the holy place and the holy of holies is a veil, a curtain. On that curtain, designed on that curtain, are cherubim, as if to guard the presence of God. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. When Jesus died on the cross, what was torn into from top to bottom? The veil, the curtain of that temple. That veil that reminded the Israelites that there was something that guarded the that stood guard between them and the presence of God. Jesus is saying, not anymore. Man can come to God anytime, anywhere through Jesus Christ. Man is separated from God because of sin, but thank God the tree of life was guarded and not destroyed. If God destroyed it, none of us could ever be saved. What happened? Real quick. Revelation. 21, and then we're closing. Verse 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me a river with the water of life clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street and on each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month and the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations and you jump to verse 14 blessed are those who wash their robes they will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree life. It's no longer guarded. It's no longer off limits. It's made available to those who put themselves in Christ. Sin wants to get you to doubt the goodness of God. It wants to get you to deny the judgment of God. But Jesus Christ In God's goodness came and He took the judgment of God for you. And all you have to do is put yourself in Christ. Stand with me today. He's inviting you to come, to come into His presence. So I invite you today. If you've not put yourself in Christ and given yourself to him, that you want to, you feel that you deserve to choose what's good for your life. But you know that what you think is good for your life is eventually going to destroy it. I'm inviting you today to turn from that. To turn to Christ. To follow him. Just as Jesus said. To follow him. Sin wants to destroy him. But Jesus has come to give you new life. As we close today and as we worship him in these closing moments. I invite you today to turn to him. Make Jesus Christ your Lord. Paul says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. So whatever you've made Lord of your life, take it off. Make Jesus Lord. And worship Him. And just, as we sing this song today, worship Him and ask God, let your spirit, breathe your spirit into me, into my life. Breathe the flame of God we worship, you're welcome to come. If you feel the need to come and as a symbol and just kneel before God, and do it. If you need to come to me and pray with me, I'll be right over here. But just turn your life to Christ and follow him with everything that's in you.